Thanks, Ben and Michael. Uh, g'day, everyone. If you haven't met before, uh, my name is Ben Gray. I'm the Minister of the Church. It's great to have you with us. I'll encourage you to scan that QR code on the back of the seat in front of you as well uh, so that we can be in touch. I'd love to hear more about your story and get to know you better. Uh, we're in Colossians 3. We started it last week, this little passage, talking about wives and husbands. And tonight we're going to talk about children and parents and slaves and masters. Why don't we pray and we'll ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these moments together now and we thank you for your word. We pray that by your spirit you would help us to understand it rightly, not only to understand it, but to delight in it, to receive it to build our lives upon it. We ask that you would do this for us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, Today is Trinity Sunday in the church calendar, as no doubt you're already aware. Uh, The church calendar really doesn't um, shape our church life very much, but given it's Trinity Sunday, I thought it would be good to start with a long quote about the Trinity. Ugh. Can I say, is there anything less boring than thinking about who God is? Uh, If you want to spend some time this long weekend thinking about who God is, doing some deep theological thinking, there's a bunch of really good books on the back table. They're free. That means you can take one and no one will arrest you at the door. Just take one and read it. Here's one I'm going to recommend. I just put more copies there. There's six copies there tonight. The Everlasting God by Broughton Knox. It's all about who God is. And uh, I think one of the most helpful explanations of the Trinity, which is quite a hard kind of thing to get your head around, but at its very essence, the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, means that the very essence of God is relationship. That at the centre of the universe is a community of love. A relationship of love. That is the very centre of the universe. So here you go. Here's Broughton Knox. Hold on to your hats. He says, personal relationship is ultimate reality. The basic requirement for the establishment and the maintenance of true personal relationship is other person-centredness. That is, genuine interest in the other person and their welfare and forwarding of that welfare by every appropriate means at one's disposal. This means that absolute other person-centredness is the most real thing in being a person. There can be no trace of self-centredness in true personal relationships. The smallest degree of self-centeredness diminishes that relationship and complete self-centeredness, well, that's the negation of any personal relationship and the complete absence of relationship, well, that is hell. God's other person-centeredness, well, that is absolute and it is active, it confers benefits on, on the other person all the time Thus we read that in the Trinity, the Father always gives the Son everything. So Jesus said, as the Father has life in himself, 
So even he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Jesus again said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he does. And similarly of the Son, we read that of his true personal response to the initiative of the Father, Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the the will of him who sent me. Jesus' response springs from his other person-centeredness. He says, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. The Son does nothing of himself, but as the Father has taught him. And the Spirit, too, is other person-centered within the Trinity. Jesus said of the Spirit, he shall not speak from himself, but whatsoever things he shall hear, these things he speaks. Again, Jesus said that the Spirit does not glorify himself, but glorifies the Son, just as the Son does not seek his own glory, but the Father's. Do you see, in the Trinity, there is complete, mutual, other person-centeredness. Therefore, the establishment, the maintenance, and the deepening of personal relationship That is the true object of all human activity. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. Do you hear that? Relationship with God, relationship with one another. That is the true object of all human activity. That's why you exist. And we're in a passage at the moment that talks all about relationships and how those relationships are shaped and impacted by the self-sacrificial, other-person-centred love of God. That if your relationships have been built and established by other-person-centred love and for other-person-centred love, what will that look like? Particularly in relationships where you feel like you have very little responsibility or very little control. What does that look like in circumstances where you feel like you don't have much decision-making capability to change the direction of your life? Well, that's what this passage is all about. Sometimes these verses in Colossians can be talked about as some little cultural conclusion, not really part of the main body of the letter, It can feel like a little postscript of niceties just to keep the peace. By the way, Jesus has done all that, but just, you know, keep the peace and don't rock the boat. But that's to miss the very heart of the universe. That the God of relationship, who is himself Father, Son and Spirit, a mutual, um, a community of mutual love relationships that he is the one who is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus. He is the one who is making peace for you by Jesus' blood shed on the cross. He is the one who is renewing you into his image once again, right? You've been bought by other person-centred love for other person-centred love to be made more and more like Jesus, that you might reflect him in your everyday relationships. That's God's big project for your, for your life. 
for you to reflect his other person-centred love more and more (laughs) and more as he remakes you into the image of his son. The challenge for the Christian who has been reconciled to God, who's being renewed into the image of Jesus, who's been raised to life in Christ and is now living out that reality, the challenge is what does that look like in everyday relationships? And it's difficult for many in the Colossian church as it is for our church because that reality needs to be lived out in very mundane, very everyday ways. And so there's this picture of the the fact that you've been raised with Christ doesn't mean that you've been lifted out of the relationships of this life. It doesn't mean that you kind of have been disembodied and that you have this existence where those relationships don't matter anymore, where those responsibilities don't matter anymore, right? And that you're just going to live this disembodied, raised with Christ life over here. And Paul's big point here, as it is in the very next letter in 1 Thessalonians, is to say, no, being raised with Christ transforms your relationships now, it doesn't remove you from them. And so he he comes to these Christians in the midst of these relationships and says, even here, you get to live out the Lordship of Jesus and his other person-centred love. You get to live out the freedom and the fullness that Jesus gives, even when you have very little capacity to change your circumstances or you have very little capacity to decide on the direction and shape of your life. When you don't have much control over your life or much capacity to to change things, how do you live this out? Well, profoundly is Paul's answer. You can live this out profoundly by making your relationships about the other person expressing the same kind of other person-centred love that rescued and saved you and reconciled you to God. And that when you do that, you are reflecting the very heart of your Creator. That when you love other people and live in relationship to them like Jesus, then you are expressing the very essence of reality no matter what situation that you find yourself in. So that other person-centred love is the most real and most Jesus-like thing you could do any day of the week. And just as we said last week, this picture of relationships, it totally flips the script on our cultural expectations of relationships. And once again, we see this countercultural and counterintuitive mutuality in relationships. It runs against our personal bent for selfishness, it runs against our cultural bent towards self centeredness. And here, the challenge for you and for me is that we might model Jesus' humility and Jesus' other person centeredness as we direct all those Jesus like 
traits of love that we see earlier in the chapter towards one another. And amazingly, the love of Jesus doesn't wipe out the differences that exist between people and the particular roles and responsibilities that people hold. Jesus doesn't wipe those differences out, but he totally transforms how we express them. And he begins it with very simple instructions for children and for parents. Have a look at verse 20 with me. Where he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Again, it's totally countercultural that Paul would address children as responsible people, that they are responsible people within the community of the church. That is a totally countercultural thing. I'm going to stop for a second and try and fix this because it's driving me nuts. Is it driving you nuts? I don't actually know what it is. Let's see how that goes. That's the extent of my tech abilities right there. Hopefully that's fixed things. That Paul addresses children as responsible people within the church is, is a totally countercultural move. Children in the first century world are kind of resources that are there to promote their father's name, to promote their father's interest, to promote their father's uh, line and that sort of thing. But here Paul is addressing them as people who are within the church, no doubt listening to this letter being read, and who are to take their place as responsible disciples of Jesus within the church. He appeals to these young disciples as every bit members of the church, that children are to be active receivers of the gospel, that children are expected to be people living out the Christian life just like their parents, and that children are people who can please the Lord in their response to the gospel. Isn't that a wonderful thing? that children are actually people. They're people who are capable of hearing and understanding and responding to the good news of Jesus and being challenged to live their lives in a way that pleases the Lord. And one of the key ways that children can please the Lord is by obeying their parents. Oh, really? Is that really the thing? as a picture of the fact that God has created families to be one of his chief building blocks of society, that are meant to model what God's own fatherly love is like, as families are meant to be the first little church, even as church is meant to be your second family. And so parents, the, pic the picture we get here is that parents are responsible for their children. That parents are meant to direct their children and teach their children and disciple their children. And that children are supposed to see in their parents wisdom and instruction and guidance. All too often in our day and age, we see parents following their children around, just responding to their every wish and whim. 
responding to the pressures of our society to give our children every opportunity. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? We want to give our children every opportunity. Does that sound like a good thing? It does, doesn't it? But friends, if your children were to miss out on every opportunity and gain Jesus, that would be a good deal. What's the point of chasing our children around this world, giving them every opportunity, if they cannot see from us and receive from us and find from us and and follow us in following the Lord Jesus? My son came home the other day with university information booklets just to freak me out. And the thing that struck me as we kind of lined them all up on the table was that every university information booklet has some kind of message on the front with the word you in it. I should have had a photo of them up there for you. It's all about you. Right? It's responding to and reflecting our kind of um, the bent of our hearts that is towards self centeredness. And that the future is all about you, and your job prospects are all about you, and what you do with your life is all about you. And as we sat there talking about all these different universities and programs and different directions that you could take and all that sort of thing, the two things that struck me is the the constant message that life is all about you and that other person-centeredness is totally absent because God is totally absent. And the other thing that struck me is, do I put as much effort into talking to my son about his university degree and future and job prospects and direction of his life as I do about him following the Lord Jesus? and growing in godliness, and seeking to be wise in the way that he pursues these things? Do I spend as much time praying with him as I do talking about the different options of life? The picture we get is that that children ought to be finding, looking for and finding in their parents guidance and wisdom and instruction that enables them not to make the most of every opportunity but enables them to know and to trust and to follow the Lord Jesus. And in in obeying their parents and listening to their parents and following their parents Paul says that is where children, as disciples, will please the Lord. The second thing he says, though, is addressed to fathers. You could make a case that it's fathers and mothers, but I wonder if Paul singles out fathers because fathers have a propensity to fail in this area and embitter their children because of their expectations or their absence but also because fathers are given a particular responsibility to reflect 
the fatherhood of God to their family. Paul says to fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The picture is provoking your children to the point of rebellion, not so much from their parents as it is from the Lord. Do not promote the conditions within your family that encourage and enable your children to run away from Jesus, even as they run away from you. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. If there's something that children and young people of this generation need in seeking to follow after the Lord Jesus in this world, they're going to need courage. Courage to be different. Courage to stand for the truth. Courage to repent and believe the good news. And the challenge for fathers and for parents is to provide the kind of environment in the home that builds up their children in that courage. That they might be equipped to live the Christian life. How might you discourage your children and embitter them so they want to stop following Jesus even as they stop obeying you? Well, you can do it really easily. You want to embitter and discourage children, you can constantly make and break promises. The opposite of what God does. If you want to discourage children, you could be totally inconsistent, changing your mind every day. If you want to embitter your children, you could incessantly nag them. You could be on their back about everything that they do. I remember being challenged some years ago about whether in my parenting my children think leaving the lid off the peanut butter and lying are kind of the same thing because of my response to both those things. Do you respond to the the small things with the kind of weight that you're meant to respond to the big things, right? That's a good way to discourage your children. You could discourage them by embarrassing them in front of their friends or by not spending time with them. Are we so consumed by our own busyness and our own stress and our own failures maybe that we forget to have fun with our children? We forget to enjoy them, that we forget to learn how to play. You could embitter your children and provoke them to walk away from the Lord by being a hypocrite. I think my greatest fear in the world is that my children think they see a different person up here on a Sunday as what they see in the house next door all week. Terrifies me. God provides families as a place in which the gospel of the Lord Jesus takes root and shapes lives 
and builds disciples. And the reality is that all of us are shaped by our parents, probably more than we realise. And some of you sitting here tonight, as parents, need to reevaluate your priorities. You need to rethink your relationship with your children and their relationship to the world so that they might be given courage to follow the Lord Jesus above everything else. And can I say that there's probably a lot of you here tonight who, as I speak, are thinking about all the ways in which your parents have let you down. That you can make a very long list of things that your parents haven't done for you to help you follow the Lord Jesus or to provide for you in general. And if that's the case, you might need to do business with God and you might need to go to the foot of the cross and you might need to do some very deep work of forgiveness and reconciliation, not only with them, but with your Heavenly Father who has never let you down and never will. And some of you who are sitting here tonight, and I didn't realise so many of you would bring your parents tonight. (laughs) Some of you probably need to thank your parents for giving you courage to follow the Lord Jesus and providing for you in so many ways. So lots of you probably need to send a text to them later or speak to them if they're sitting in the pew next to you. Paul moves on from children and parents to talk about slaves and masters. Have a look with me at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. It's amazing, isn't it? Paul addresses masters, which is quite remarkable, in suggesting that masters owe their slaves anything. And not that just that their masters owe their slaves something, but that they owe their slaves what is right and fair. And the reason that they should do what is right and fair is because they too have a master in heaven, that they live under the lordship of Jesus And that no matter what the culture is saying or what they think from their circumstances, they're not in charge. Jesus is. And he sees everything because there is no favouritism. And so these masters ought to do what is right and fair. But the most words in this whole passage are addressed to slaves. And I think that's partly because slaves, I think, had one of the hardest jobs in responding to the gospel and living out the fullness and freedom of Jesus in the first century world. How do you do that when you're not in charge of your own life? The historians reckon that about 50% of the population were slaves in some kind of 
master-slave relationship. It included doctors and teachers. There are a lot of slaves. And again, it's remarkable because Paul is addressing them as responsible, active members of the church, sitting there listening to this letter read and working out what it means to live out the fullness and the freedom of a reconciled relationship to their heavenly father. Now, people struggle when they read these verses because they think, why doesn't Paul just say, slaves, run away, you are free, right? Which is a somewhat ironic thing because if you skip over to chapter 4, you'll see that one of the people who walked through the door holding this letter as a messenger from Paul is none other than Onesimus, the runaway slave, whom Paul is sending back to this church to be received as a brother fellow Christian in the Lord. One of the things that needs to be clarified is the fact that the Bible never endorses slavery as a good thing. The Bible never grounds slavery in God's creative design or the pattern of the gospel like it does for marriage. But rather the gospel is to so transform people that they are viewed that even slaves are viewed as people and not property, that there is an equality of personhood that is on view here, that is totally countercultural for the day, that slaves and masters are on equal footing in the Lord, both serving the same Lord Jesus, both with a great inheritance in the Lord, right? This is what um, Doug Moo, a uh, Bible scholar writes, he says, the reciprocity that's a hallmark of this Colossian household code, this, it emerges here in an emphatic form, that slaves and masters ultimately serve the same Lord and that they have the same fundamental spiritual reality that not only relativizes their earthly relationship but even sets the stage for its abolishment. And if you follow the, tr- the train this train of thought and this thread of history, you'll see that the New Testament actually sets the scene for the abolishment of slavery. But Paul, as he addresses slaves, reminds them that they have a new allegiance, that they're living not for their earthly masters, but they're living for the Lord Jesus. And given the way that slavery worked in the New Testament, that it's different to kind of the transatlantic slave trade that we kind of have in our heads, many people have taken the leap to say this is more of a picture of an employee-employer relationship and so it's totally relevant for our work life. That's true to an extent, right? Though you wouldn't want to claim that the job you have to go to on Tuesday morning is anything like slavery despite what it feels like from time to time. But Paul's instructions to slave might give us some help in thinking about how we persevere, how we go about our work lives, and what we think we're doing, and the attitude of our hearts as we go about even the very mundane, what seem like pointless and everyday tasks. The first thing he he changes is is how they go about everything they do. To work uh, 
to obey their earthly masters in everything, not only when their eye is on you to carry favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. We've all been in those jobs, haven't we, where you feel like you work a little bit harder or you just click on random things or you sweep something pointlessly when the boss walks past so that it looks like you're doing some work. I used to work at Sydney Airport and it was at the very late shift and so there's no one around. It felt extremely pointless. And there was lots of kind of menial tasks that you were meant to do every night and you'd do those and it would take you about an hour and then you had four more hours to kind of stand there till midnight thinking, why am I here? Right? And what made it kind of comical and a little bit stressful is that from time to time you'd kind of notice out of the corner of your eye that the boss was standing behind a pole spying on you checking that you're doing what you're meant to be doing and you'd kind of busy yourself for a few minutes till you see that they walk on. Paul says that that's not how you work, seeking to trust the Lord and live for Him and do your job and be responsible and be reliable and be helpful and be kind and compassionate when someone's looking because everything is done within the eyesight of God. And so whatever you are doing, you do with the eye of the Lord on you. And here's the thing, God isn't looking at you like my old boss from behind the pole waiting for you to slip up so that he can yell at you. That your, the face of your heavenly Father is always turned towards you in love because of the Lord Jesus. And his eye is upon you because he cares for you. And his eye is upon you because he's for you. And his eye is upon you because he delights in you. And so you can live and work with all your heart, knowing that you are cared for and that you matter and that you are loved by your Heavenly Father. And the other thing that Paul says for these slaves, that not only are they not working for human masters, they are working for the Lord, but they are not working for human reward but for the inheritance that comes from the Lord. Again, speaking to slaves in the first century who would not inherit anything, to be told in Christ you will inherit everything means that they are free from the fear and the anxiety of not having anything in this world. And where do they look for their security? And where do they look for their comfort? And where do they look for their reward? Well, the joy of Jesus' perfect future. If Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, the one who will receive all things, and you are in Christ, you too will inherit all things in him and the joy of his eternal kingdom. And so that you are free to let your heart let go of all the earthly rewards of this life. That you don't need to pursue every opportunity 
and you don't need to pursue every investment and you don't need to pursue every reward. That you can be content and you can rest in the infinite and the eternal inheritance of Jesus' perfect future. You are set free from that fear and that anxiety and that discontent as you live for him and for his reward. You don't need to be driven by your salary or your bank balance. You don't need to fear missing out on every opportunity. You can live with a lightness of heart and a burden-free service of the Lord Jesus that, knows, that, that rests in the fact that whatever your circumstances, no matter how difficult, no matter how mundane, no matter how repetitive or pointless it feels, all of it matters because you matter and you matter to God. Jesus is the all-supreme Lord and the all-sufficient Saviour. He's in charge of the cosmos and he's in charge of the couch. He is Lord of the heavens as well as your home. He rules the world. He's over the majestic as well as the mundane. And so you can live with an audience of one, knowing that your life counts and all of it matters because of the Lordship of Jesus and you can rest in him. Why don't I pray once again? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again that at the centre of the universe is a relationship of love that you call us into, you draw us into by your grace. Help us to be so transformed by your other person-centred love, the love that rescued us and reconciled us to you, that we might live lives of other person-centredness and that we can do that in whatever circumstance you place us with whatever relationships we find ourselves in, that we can do that with sincerity of heart, knowing that your eye is upon us knowing that what we do matters because it's redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. So help us to live with light hearts, with burden-free service of you. Help us to do that every day, knowing that every day Jesus is Lord. Amen.